Hello and thanks for tuning in to this episode of the ALT Learn Podcast. I'm John Tate and I'll be your host as we break down the craft of teaching and the science of learning, what this pedagogy looks like in the classroom, and get to find out how our teachers are turning all this theory into practice. So, let's dive into this week's episode. Welcome to episode 9 of the ALT Learn Podcast, where we've got a cracking episode lined up for you today, discussing what we can take from our own parenting skills and experiences and transfer them into our teaching practice. So I'm pleased to say that alongside me on today's show, we have Sam Weston, Lead Learning Manager for Key Stage 4 at Richmond School. A warm welcome to the podcast, Sam, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to sit down with me and discuss the craft of teaching. Thank you. It's great to be here. Brilliant. Now, I want to give a little bit of context and background here on today's guest, because I know that there'll be teachers across the trust who don't teach at Richmond that won't know you, Sam. And also, we've got many listeners from across the country and even internationally that regularly listen to our podcast. So the title for today's episode is How My Experience as a Send Parent Has Made Me a Better Teacher. Um, so a little introduction and background to you, Sam, if I may, to help with the context, is that one of your children, Marcus, who's 16 and attends Richmond School here, has an extremely rare condition called CFC syndrome, which, if I try and pronounce it now, is cardiofaciocutaneous, uh, with fewer than 800 cases known worldwide, and amazingly, only 300 of those cases when Marcus was diagnosed age two. So before we get into how your experiences have made you a better teacher, can you start by just giving listeners a brief overview in kind of layman's terms of what this syndrome means and the challenges that you faced as a parent over the last 16 years? So, hello everyone. CFC syndrome is incredibly rare, as uh, John's just said, and um, it's incurable and it's a, a random genetic mutation. So we had no idea that Marcus had CFC syndrome uh, until he was two years old and we had no idea that anything was going to be different until he was a few weeks old really we, you know we could see that um, that he, things weren't quite right um, so yeah I would describe myself naturally as quite positive and optimistic and I prefer to look for solutions rather than uh, dwell on problems but Marcus's early years were were terrible and we were dealt one devastating blow after another um, every specialist he saw added another devastating diagnosis to his ever-growing list and we were presented with so many can'ts, won'ts and nevers. Even now every form we fill in for social services or EHCPs ask us to focus on everything that Marcus cannot do uh, to, in order to justify the help that he's um, able to receive. And very early on, we knew that we couldn't live our lives like that, and we chose to focus on helping Marcus to reach his full potential, whatever that might be. So Marcus was diagnosed with CFC syndrome when he was two years old. He also has autism, hearing loss, poor vision, and congenital heart defects. He has lots of other conditions as well, which don't necessarily impact his learning. Uh, he spent the first two years of his life in and out of hospital with the longest spell lasting five months. Um, he was diagnosed with severe reflux and failure to thrive at three weeks old. And to be totally honest, that diagnosis felt like my failure, my failing as a mother. Talk about negative framing. Mm-hmm. Um, he went on to be tube fed by a pump and even intravenously for a while in an attempt to get him to grow. Malnutrition and an as yet unknown, unknown, diagnosed, uh, unknown genetic mutation meant that Marcus didn't develop as a typical baby and it was very apparent that he was not hitting his milestones. Um, by that time he was a year old, um, he weighed just £12 pounds, 
and he had met just a couple of milestones. He could smile and he could make eye contact. He couldn't eat orally at all. Um, he didn't have many gross motor skills. He could move, but not in a coordinated or, or planned way. He didn't have the strength to hold his head up. Uh, the doctors described him as floppy. He couldn't e even eat. He couldn't grow. He was weighed daily, which further reinforced uh, our sense of failure as mm -hmm. parents. Um, every interaction with every doctor or specialist or therapist was negative. There was no progress to report. So eating and growing were his main challenges at first. He got bronchiolitis when he was three weeks old and refused to feed. So just to give a bit of an idea, he was £7.15 when he was born, three weeks early. He was a big baby, but by the time he was four weeks old, he weighed, he was a pound lighter. He weighed mm. £6.15. He vomited 10 or 20 times daily and developed a feeding aversion. When he was tube fed, he still vomited. And I spent hours just dripping milk on his tongue for him to spit it out or vomit it back up an hour later. But still, we persisted, just a few drops of water or milk on his tongue every single day. He forgot how to suck. And uh, I don't know whether I'm just pig-headed or, or what, but I just couldn't accept that he wasn't going to eat. We bought and tried every single dummy bottle, cup and tea that we could lay our hands on um, to try. Then, when he was 22 months old, he eventually drank some water. One week later, he drank and swallowed a few drops of milk. Six months later, we were confident enough to have his feeding tube removed, and he survived on a fortified milk for the next five years or so. All the while, we sat him at the table to eat with us. For years, he refused to eat anything. Eventually, he touched, licked, and then tasted food. And now he's 16, and his world revolves around his next meal, just like any <laughs> other typical teenage boy. So, a baby with severe reflux, a feeding aversion, major bowel surgery, a rare genetic mutation, global developmental delay, and undiagnosed autism, who spent most of his first year of life in hospital, has not had the best start in life, has missed all those windows of opportunity. For him, eating was not instinctive or natural. It was painful and uncomfortable. He didn't recognise hunger cues. He associated food with pain. He couldn't suck, swallow, or chew. His oral muscles hadn't developed as they should. The longer this went on, the more difficult it became. Feeding needed to be broken down into its most basic parts. We had to go right back to the beginning. Smelling food, touching food, sitting upright and properly supported at the table. Tolerating, then learning about different flavours. All of those sensory barriers needed to be overcome before we would chew or swallow a single morsel. So, hopefully you can see how our story makes a good metaphor for learning in mm -hmm. the classroom. Some young people in our classrooms might not have also had the best start in life due to illness or developmental delays or family circumstances, mental health issues. They too may have missed those windows of development or have gaps in their learning. What I've learned is we can't change their past or their backgrounds, but we can help them to change their futures by attempting to fill in those gaps and being relentlessly positive about what is possible with determination and hard work. It sounds cheesy, I know, but I have trained myself to look for positives in life and also in the classroom. I choose to focus on progress, however small or seemingly insignificant. I focus on things that I can change for students in the classroom and I help them to do the same, hopefully. 
in education, I think it's really easy for us to, to become overwhelmed by aspirational targets that seem impossible at first or the daunting task of changing a culture of a, of a team or a school or a mindset. But I've learned that you have to start small and keep moving in baby steps towards, towards the bigger goal. Uh, getting Marcus to eat was a huge, overwhelming, seemingly insurmountable goal. Even his specialist told us it, it was unlikely he would ever eat normally and would most likely be tube-fed into his bowel for 20 hours a day for the rest of his life. So we were told that he couldn't eat. Marcus couldn't eat. Yet. I think we'd learnt the power of yet long before I'd ever heard of Carol Dweck. <laughs> um, the doctors couldn't explain why he couldn't eat. They couldn't find any physical reason why he was unable to eat. So that gave me the green light to try to persist and to keep working towards the impossible. Fantastic. Right, now, with that kind of powerful context, um, I really want to now start to look at kind of, you know, the, how these experiences you've described have enabled you to, to transfer those skills into your classroom and improve your overall classroom practices. So hopefully people have got a real kind of indication there of, of kind of the challenges, the barriers, the mindset uh, and all the things that you've had to kind of overcome and um, we're going to now kind of dig a little bit deeper now into kind of what that's meant in the classroom and how those kind of things have really transferred over so um, one of the key aspects of the first half term has been how we can reprogram our brains to not only or so should I say, not always call out negative behavior or when things are going wrong by drawing attention to it but instead using positive framing scripts to change the narrative and the culture in our classrooms and Joe Bainbridge talked about this a lot in the last episode and how it had taken a, actually years of deliberate practice to get to where she is now, where this has become almost automated. So what experiences, Sam, have you gained from your 16 years of, of, of being a, a SEND parent and the experiences you've just kind of, uh, you've just laid out there that have resulted in you being able to transfer these skills into your teaching? So I think that very, very early on, my husband and I had to not dwell on all of the things that Marcus could not or will not do. I actually stopped asking the doctors very early on what for their predictions. I just didn't find it helpful mm -hmm. at all. Um, and very early on, we had um, a portage worker. Now, the thing about being a SEN parent, you, there, there are all these people working. Then you have no idea who they are mm -hmm. until you find yourself. You don't don't really know what social services do until mm -hmm. until you have to engage yeah. with them. Yeah or um, Portage, that was a service that I'd never heard of, but they are um, a, a team of early intervention specialists who come into your home and sort of teach you how to, how to interact with, it, with a child that might not be interacting with you. Mm -hmm. And I remember then um, being taught several things that, that I kind of knew as a teacher, but it, but it really sharpened my focus. So when giving praise, Portage worker, Michelle, she was called, always said, Sam, you've got to praise the thing that they do. Don't just say, well done, generically. You, he, you know, he won't understand what it is that mm -hmm. you're praising. Mm -hmm. So, um, and she would model that for us. So mm -hmm. when he was, um, we, did, we did a lot of tummy time. He didn't have the strength in the, to lift his head up. So we had to do a lot of lying on his stomach, which he felt very uncomfortable trying to encourage him to lift his head, propped up with pillows. And she would always say, good lifting. Mm -hmm. Always describe what he, what he was doing. If he was transferring a toy from one hand to the other, mm -hmm. it would be kind of, you know, good holding, good moving. It would be always describing what he was doing and praising and praising mm -hmm. that rather than just, you know, praise, praise generically. Yeah, yeah. 
And is that, so is that something you, then you've kind of now yeah, adopted? Yeah, I think it's just become instinctive. Uh-huh. You know, it, it wasn't instinctive at the beginning yeah, to yeah. do that, uh-huh. but it has become automated, if you like. The, the and and how, how do you find then that students respond better to that? So, so like, like, take that example of me saying, um, well done, good boy, great effort. But when you then start to kind of, like you say, be really specific about well done, that piece of work or, or this introductory paragraph or the way you've done, you know, how does that, how do students respond better and, and what's the impact you've seen of being more specific in that praise? I think it, open, it, will, it will often open up a, a conversation. Mm-hmm. If somebody says, well done, what is the response? Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you've um, praised something specifically, you can then say, well, what was it about that that, that, that was good? And you mm-hmm. can develop that a little bit further or you can uh, look at the, and then lead into an aspect that maybe wasn't quite so successful. Mm-hmm. They might then say well what about that was that if you say say well, the beginning was amazing of that narrative you know yeah. you've really set the scene um when you pick something i just think it opens up um, an opportunity for broader conversation yeah and i'm just kind of reflecting on on kind of my experiences and also my experiences of, of kind of leading teaching learning and, and seeing lots of doing lots of kind of book looks or work scrutiny and, and, I, and I probably just off the top of my head now thinking that we probably do that better in our written feedback mm-hmm. than we do in our verbal feedback yeah because we've been more well trained uh, to actually in the feedback do almost like what went well or EBIs in yeah, that race exactly. and actually be quite specific yeah you, you wouldn't just write well done in a book anymore in 20 30 years ago we might have I mean, yeah. we look at our school books from you know if you've still got school books of your own look at them and you look, look at the marking one wow it just said good boy well done you know and yeah. there's kind of no specific exactly it? but I wonder then if we need to then start to be more conscious about transferring what we would do in written form into our verbal praise. And I think, uh, you, you know, having that verbal conversation is probably even more powerful than just having it written down, isn't yeah, it? Because it, it, there's, a, there's a chance to respond to that. Yeah, and it's in the here and now, it's immediate. Yeah. And as we've seen with things like that we've used like Mort, you can have some richness in your voice and you can use body language and you can use expression and you can smile yeah. or you can be... You can frown if you're not very happy. You know, you can do all those things that you can't do in a written sense. So yeah, I think that, that, that's really interesting that, that we've we've kind of picked that out. Um, next thing I want to ask Sam is that we all kind of feel like uh, we would like to be in control of many aspects of our lives, and our students are usually no different to this. So rather than appearing to be the one who was always in, who was always dictating what students have to do, how have you used your parent experiences to add choice to your instructions, even if it's two carefully selected choices that you've decided upon anyway? So this is another technique that I learned from Michelle when she came to our house. Marcus was in his early years when she joined us, maybe when he was about 12 months old, was extreme, still extremely underweight and malnourished and therefore didn't have very much energy for learning. Didn't, wasn't really able to communicate more than smiling and pointing. I don't even know whether he was pointing at that stage. Um, but she encouraged us to make, to very early on to encourage him to make choices and to give him choices as a means of engaging with him Mm -hmm. and enabling him to engage with us and the world around him. So even without speech, choices can be communicated with eye gaze, Mm -hmm. gestures. Later, we would use Makatong or PEX, which is a kind of image system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Choices encourage positive communication, but they also give an element of control Mm -hmm. to a person who may not have very Mm -hmm. much control. So regularly handing over to control to students, I think, can prevent them from, or it can help prevent them from seeking control in disruptive or negative ways. Uh 
So I think it's possible to successfully combine choice making and positive framing into our daily classroom routines by giving them lots of opportunities to make carefully managed choices throughout the lesson. Mm -hmm. So for example, as an English teacher, I like every student to read aloud in class, mm -hmm. even reluctant readers. Yep. That can be a real challenge, getting yeah, yeah. a reluctant reader to um, mm -hmm. read in front of their peers. So I have a routine where every reader gets to choose the next reader. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which they enjoy. Okay. And it's mu they're much less likely to re refuse when their peer has chosen mm -hmm. them. That's interesting, isn't when it? I've chosen them. Mm -hmm. Just an observation. Yeah, a bit of positive peer pressure there at, at play. Uh, I also allow them to choose how much they read. Mm -hmm. So they can read a minimum of three sentences mm -hmm. or they can read a maximum of a page. Mm -hmm. If they opt to read a page, they automatically go on the board mm -hmm. for a contender for a star performer. Mm -hmm. So uh, it feels collaborative. Everyone has to keep up because mm -hmm. they don't quite know when the next person is mm -hmm. going to stop and I get to hear everybody read. Mm -hmm. Now I'd say at the start of the year, there's, a, there's always one or two that need a little bit of cajoling and persuading. Mm -hmm. I kind of just leave it. I don't put too much pressure mm -hmm. on it. Are you sure you don't want to just read one sentence maybe? Mm -hmm. And the, if, if they really don't, we just move. But I often find that by the second or third lesson, mm -hmm. everybody's reading. Mm -hmm. The ones that would only read three sentences, We'll move to reading a yeah. paragraph. The mm -hmm. ones that have read a page sometimes say, can I keep reading? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I begin, that you know, every lesson with my uh, year 11s, we've been reading War Horse for Pleasure together. They're a class of mostly reluctant readers. They're all comfortably reading that now. Great. Together. So, uh, so I mean, it sounds like what you're describing is that by, by giving them the what they feel like they have got the control then because they're able to choose they don't really have a choice because they've all got to read absolutely but i suppose and even if we you know if i'm thinking about if i was listening to this and i, I wasn't an english teacher i'm thinking oh, okay so how, how can i kind of put this into my context i suppose what we're saying is that we're, we're, we're then saying rather than you know here's what you're doing it's kind of you can do this or you can do this and straight away because they feel like they've got an option yeah. or a choice they're far more in control and then they will more likely to kind of pick one because there, there is no I suppose what you're doing is you're, you're framing it in a way that there's no yes or no I don't want to it's either yeah. choose this or choose this yeah. there isn't a I want you to do this yes or no it's actually well here's with your... the reading they start to feel a bit well everyone else is doing it mm -hmm. so they're really standing out in a negative yeah. way if they if they choose not to yeah so hmm. so when Marcus was learning to eat we'd always offer two foods yeah I'd offer him one that I knew that he would accept mm -hmm. this is when he's a bit older when he's sort of seven or eight and one that fell out of his comfort zone. Mm -hmm. So there's always two things. Um, a lot of the time to begin with, the one that was out of his comfort zone, somebody else would end up eating it or it'd go in the bin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was there. Uh -huh. It was on in front of him. Uh, as time went on, he'd be, he'd, he would accept it being on, on the table in front of him. I mean, initially it would be push it away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not having that. Yeah. Eventually he would just eat the other thing with it being there. Mm -hmm. Then he'd start to show a little bit of interest, smelling mm -hmm. it, touching it maybe. Mm -hmm. And eventually it might take months. Mm -hmm. Eventually it would be accepted. And I suppose if we then translate that back to the classroom, you know, that's that's exactly what we're hoping, isn't it? That actually because that because the, that that second choice, the one that you know has is the one that they don't want to do, or has been more difficult, or the more challenging one, actually as it's there all the time, then suddenly it becomes like you say just part and parcel of, of what happens and then more likely to 
Okay, I've got a bit more confidence and I'll, I'll eventually I'll, I'll kind of give it a go. So what you might do with questioning, if you're differentiating your work, is you give... There's one question that everybody you know is kind of at an appropriate level. Not easy, I don't mm -hmm. want to use the word easy, but a question yeah. that is suitable for the class. Accessible, yeah. And then you'd have another one, a challenging one. Mm -hmm. And there'll be those students straight away that will be, I want to do that challenging yeah. one. Mm -hmm. But you're always going to get the ones that are not, haven't got the confidence to mm -hmm. go for that. They don't want to get it wrong in front of everyone. But mm -hmm. if that choice is always there, yeah. you would hope that eventually mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. that that positivity would, would spread throughout the classroom. They're, hopefully at some point in the future they'll feel confident enough or when they see the recognition that the other students mm -hmm. are getting for having a go, even if they don't yeah, get yeah. it right, that there's no humiliation or anything, mm -hmm. that they will eventually give that a go. I mean, when we're reading Shakespeare, everyone has to take a turn reading. But I would say, who wants a main part? Who wants a smaller part? Mm -hmm. So there's still an element of choice. Mm -hmm. um, That's interesting. I know we, we, were, we were chatting about this kind of uh, a couple of days ago when, when we first started discussing this, and I, I said it felt like a little bit kind of like... Kind of, I describe it as Jedi mind tricks in terms of like, actually, I'm not going to say, do you want to do this or do you not want to do it? I'm not going to even ask that. I'm just saying, no. your, your choices are A or B, yeah. like end of, you know? Yeah, you could and write a story. You have to think creatively sometimes, though, about, you know, we're writing a narrative. I might say, so right, we're going to do some writing today. You can choose. You can do it in first person or third person. And I think the choices need to be chosen carefully and yeah. judiciously. Um, there are occasions when safeguarding is paramount and actually they just need to be told to do as mm -hmm. they're told. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. It's, it's, it's knowing when to include Absolutely. those choices. And, and, and it's using it as part of your, your toolbox of skills, isn't it? To mm. know, you know, which, which context, which, you know, which kind of lessons, which students, et cetera, et cetera, and where you might need to use that kind of element of choice to get so that students feel like they've got more control. And it gives them ownership of their learning Absolutely. early on, doesn't yeah. it, really? That they, they feel... In Definitely. control and that, that they own. Interestingly, I've I've seen this in a in a previous kind of school where and listeners might be kind of um, aware of things like takeaway homework, where actually you can choose how you uh, what medium you present the homework mm. in because with lots of homework tasks, we don't or lots of assessment tasks really to be honest. Apart from when we get to final exams, we're not really bothered if we if we take it back to kind of the bare bones of what we're trying to do. We're not really bothered about them doing a PowerPoint presentation or an essay or something. What no. we want to know is, have you understood what I've taught you? Yeah. That's ultimately the crux of why we yeah. set assessments, okay? And sometimes when we set and we say, you have to do a PowerPoint or you have to do this, you and, and you're dictating the medium it's in, it's, it's very prescriptive and some kids will fly, some kids won't. Suddenly when you say things like, okay, you have a choice of doing a video, doing an essay, writing a newspaper article, uh, interviewing someone, uh, doing a presentation, doing yada, 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 whatever it is, suddenly you get amazing creativity because mm -hmm. kids can use their own, like I said, they, they own it, they, they, they have choice, yeah. and then you get students who, and yes, I know you wouldn't want them to do videos all the time because you don't do some writing, but within reason, you suddenly get people massively buying into it and doing yeah. a huge amount more effort and work on the, on the task. Yeah. And ultimately, what do you get? Have they understood what I've what I've taught them? Yes, they have, yeah. because they've done an amazing, you know, uh, you know, project on it. And, yeah. and and sometimes I think that's really interesting to think. Well, do we always have to prescribe the medium this is in, or are we just looking for actually how can I check their understanding? Yeah. And you know, as long as they're not doing, like, say, a video every single time, they never put pen to paper. But as long as you're controlling yeah. that, I think that's an interesting way to actually yeah. to develop that. Uh, you know, with, with kind of homework or. Or mini assessment kind of tasks. Mm. So uh, yeah, no, really interesting. And I think that the more we can do that, and the more people can kind of get think about using choice in those certain situations, I, th I think I think is really really interesting. So so yeah. Um, 
moving on then in terms of um I want to kind of focus on, um, and I know we, we kind of chatted about this sort of kind of off air and stuff, but how's your experience as a parent having to manage tantrums or meltdowns uh, with Marcus enabled you to more successfully identify trigger points for students in your classroom and either nip students, uh, nip, well, sorry, not nip students, nip situations in the bud <laughs> or effectively resolve situations with a calm sense of authority? So, Marcus has autism, moderate learning disabilities, speech and language delay, so you can imagine that this would be a perfect recipe for <laughs> challenging behaviour especially when he's uh, frustrated or overloaded. So knowing his triggers and recognising changes in his body language really helps us to avoid meltdowns and tantrums. I think it's, all, it's probably really important to uh, recognise the difference between a meltdown and a tantrum. Go on then, so what's that? Because some people might think that immediately is the same or, you know, or, and, and we, we throw around comments, don't we, like, oh, he's kicked off or she's kicked off or she's gone, yeah. you know, what, 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 what would you describe for, for listeners in terms of those, those two kind of levels of, 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 of kind of uh, behaviour situations? So for me, a tantrum is uh, an outburst of anger or frustration triggered by something that that student wants or, or needs. Mm-hmm. Um, they retain an element of control over the situation. Yeah. Um, you know, we're all, we've all, you know, if we're a parent, we've been in that situation in the supermarket where your child wants a, a bag of sweets and you've said no and they're stamping their feet and they're shouting and you want to disappear. Um, it's also sometimes, any parents out there, it's sometimes nice where you see that happening with another family as well and you're like, it's not it just us, yeah. it's not just us and it gives you a little bit of kind of hope. Well, I like that. to think that we give lots of parents that reassurance when we're out and about yeah. and they see me managing yeah. Marcus's behaviour. <laughs> Um, because you know, at sixteen, he's you know he still does that. Mm-hmm. Um, a meltdown is different, though. A meltdown is a temporary shutdown caused by overload, mm-hmm. and it's important to remember that somebody who they may or may not be on the autistic spectrum, but mm-hmm. if somebody is having a meltdown, they've got less, they've got no control over it. Okay. Okay. So it's uh, it, it can be caused by overload. It might be an overload of noise, smells, lights, cognitive overload, an overload of dis- instructions or information. Mm-hmm. But I think the important thing to remember is a person having a meltdown will find it extremely difficult to self-regulate, yeah. and the meltdown will only fade after the triggering overload has lessened. Mm-hmm. So I think you know to, it, it's important to remember that that person when you see that happening in your classroom or in a corridor or in school somewhere is, is to kind of look for a moment think is this person choosing to behave like that mm-hmm. is it a tantrum or have they lost control yeah. over the situation so Marcus has both mm-hmm. okay so if he's refusing to go to bed or get dressed or put his iPad away um, that needs a firm authoritative approach he needs to know from my tone of voice that I mean it mm-hmm. Um, and he needs to know from experience that if I say I'm going to take something away from him yeah. or he's not going to get something he's looking forward to as a punishment, that I will go Follow through, through. Yeah. with what, so that's, what that's, I've that, said. That's exactly a, a, a tantrum then, yeah? Yeah. yeah. So clear, simple, direct instructions. Marcus, you know, his language is limited, so no sarcasm or anything. He doesn't understand it. Yeah. Just clear direction of what I want him to do. That... No nonsense approach has definitely permeated my teaching style over the years. Sometimes I kind of catch myself with like talking to them as though talking to students as though I'm talking to Marcus. Really, uh-huh. like, you know, just will you sit in your seat, please? Yeah. And you know, maybe exaggerating my tone yeah. of voice. But, but very like, clear. But even direction. just how you said it there, clear, concise. You know, short. No room for negotiation. To the point. Extreme clarity and expression you know, it's, yeah. it's kind of really yeah. directive this is what I want you to do and there has to be a clear consequence as well so I'm going to go back to the choices 
uh, are you going to get dressed or am I going to put your iPad away for the day? Mm-hmm. Okay, right, I'll get dressed. Yeah. It's, it's nine yeah. times out of ten will be the response that I get. Mm-hmm. Tantrums and defiance are easy to deal with in that respect because after a warning, he will follow the instruction because he's learnt, as I've said, that, he'll, mm-hmm. that, that I'll follow through. And I think the same consistent approach works at school in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, so... Autistic students then can be susceptible to meltdowns and they're harder to detect, I think, because they often masquerade as tantrums or defiance Mm. or anxiety Mm. or or silence. And a child in meltdown is not going to be able to explain what's going on in that moment or how they're feeling. So you've really got to be looking at their body language, I think, and and their cues. If I suspect that somebody is in meltdown, I think it's... I avoid making any unnecessary demands or questioning them. Mm-hmm. Look at the surroundings for obvious triggers. Is there lots of background noise? Is there lots going on in the mm-hmm. classroom? Is there group work going on at mm-hmm. the moment? Are there, you know, is there a little bit of disturbance in a corner that's mm-hmm. distracting them from what's going on on the board? Have you given too many complicated instructions for them to process? Yeah. Um, is there some conflict going on? In that situation, I would give that student some time out. I would look around the classroom, can I turn the lights down? Mm-hmm. Um, is the projector humming? Does mm-hmm. it really need to be on? Mm-hmm. Um, what else? I'll leave them alone for a while. So Marcus is prone to meltdown in social situations. Too many conversations across the table, loud music, me saying, say hello to Auntie so-and-so. Uh-huh. Um, Social expectations while he's trying to concentrate on what is, and you know, trying not to fart at the table and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Hold, you know, yeah. all of those things about what are, are and are not acceptable. And I think that all places stress, stress upon his senses, which can cause a fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally, he will resort to uncontrollable, high-pitched screaming in such situations. They only happen rarely now because we know his triggers. Mm-hmm. Um, and his communication is better now, so he can articulate when he's feeling uncomfortable. He usually describes he's he's tired, and when he says he's tired, yeah, I know yeah, that yeah. that means that yeah. I need to get out of here. And it's interesting that, like you, you kind of said there, because I'm thinking, well, teachers, this and this thing. Well, how am I, how am I going to identify those triggers? It's it's knowing your students. You yeah, know, it's, it's, it's building those relationships and understanding when they are giving you a verbal. Or a non-verbal kind of uh, trigger, you know, and, and I, you know, I you see their behaviour switch. Absolutely, you know, and, and you see, you know, I've worked with lots of people in terms of things where, where we've done things like team teach and physical restraint and that kind of scenarios where, you know, they're saying he's telling you to move or you know get out of the way, you know, all that kind of stuff, and actually, and then you know, in in, in poor situations, staff don't and they get hurt, and it's kind of like well. You know, they told you. You know, they they gave you that verbal trigger of, mm. I am kind of not in control. You need to kind of, be, and it's not about then you being in control of that situation and wanting to. And it's, it's not a, about losing either, no, winning or losing. Exactly, it's about understanding. Have the conversation later. Yeah, definitely. And and mm. I, you know, I sometimes see students who look like they are going to get to that stage where their foot's tapping a lot or that you know they're, 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 their knees kind of wobbling or you know they're, they're kind of you know and you you see them almost kind of shaking either their, mm. their arm or they're tapping the tapping and you're thinking they're trying to control themselves and yeah, regulate I, themselves I, I, absolutely and, it, and it's about us then having our eyes open to mm-hmm. identify that and again like you like you said and articulated not wanting not feeling you have to win or resolve it immediately because mm. actually we can always have a conversation after you yeah. know look at what the student's giving you either verbally or non-verbally and recognize that and, and be keep a professional. everyone safe in the moment yeah. isn't it yeah you them and everyone else around them absolutely so just to complicate matters marcus can be more susceptible to tantrums when he's already suffering from sensory overload mm. 
so they can kind of hit together. So one of the worst meltdowns he had a couple of years ago was in Primark. Um, I'd promised him a Toy Story duvet cover, <laughs> which he'd seen and known. He'd been looking forward to going and getting it for, mm-hmm. you know, for a week or so. Shopping is already a highly stimulating environment, much like a school. Yeah. Uh, he enjoys it, but he still finds it over, you know, very stimulating with people moving around him, noise and music, lots and lots of choices, lots of instructions from me to keep him safe. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we got there and the duvet had sold out. They only had double duvets in stock and Marcus has a single bed. <sighs> I calmly explained that the double duvet was no good and he didn't agree with me. Uh, he wanted me to buy that duvet, whatever. So I'm firm and I'm calm, saying, no, Marcus, we're not buying the duvet. Mm-hmm. We'll order one online. We'll have a look in other stores, but we're not buying that one. And he was completely unable to manage disappointment, I believe, in that moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That disappointment in not getting what he'd been looking forward to having was just too much for him. And I think the combination of that disappointment and the sensory overload mm-hmm. um, and the conflict between us regarding this duvet resulted in a really distressing scene with mm-hmm. him going into meltdown mm-hmm. high extremely high-pitched screaming in the middle of uh mm-hmm. mark as though uh, i were murdering him mm-hmm. um his sister just wanted to disappear yeah i was mortified i felt could feel the everyone's eyes on me my god what's happening here um now there's nothing i could do i couldn't get him to a calmer environment we're in the middle of a shopping i couldn't move him mm-hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't hearing me in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had to let it pass. Mm-hmm. And it did. Mm-hmm. And with about 10 minutes later, it was a very long 10 minutes, <laughs> he kind of said, oh, maybe me silly mum. Mm-hmm. And he realised. Mm-hmm. And he'd regulated. But yeah. we had to go through that painful, painful moment. So, so what, what have I learnt from that? Mm-hmm. Well, if I promised him something, mm-hmm. thank God for the internet, I will check that it's there in advance if I yeah. know that it's something that he really, really wants before I promise. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one way. Another thing is we have to keep going shopping. Mm-hmm. So it's a part of life. Mm-hmm. You know, that, um, you, we, we can't avoid shopping in the same way students can't avoid coming to school. Yeah. But we have to kind of give them the tools to, to manage those situations. Absolutely. So, so, so in terms of you know, thinking back into the classroom then, it's about understanding what the triggers are. Sometimes you can't resolve it there and then. You've got to kind of put a situation in place where you know, we, we kind of let it pass because, as you quite rightly said, when they're in that meltdown, and I've seen so many teachers over my career who want to ask the question at that time, why have you done this? And actually, it's a pointless question. Know. It's a it's, pointless question yeah. because they're not going to—they're not going to suddenly give you an amazing, articulated answer of why they've why they've done this. They don't know. They've lost control, and all you're doing by almost stoking, you know, and prodding the, that fire is making that situation even worse and worse. And, and it's yeah. like you say, it's understanding when it's a situation when you just need to back away, you know, yeah. let it let it resolve itself, and then kind of come back to it. So yeah, really kind of interesting. Um, Link to that then, and, and, and kind of, you know, we, we've talked about this before, and Joe talked about this in the last episode, about the importance of non-verbal cues when establishing and maintaining high expectations and routines, um, and, and that also might be used in series, uh, you know, um, uh, situations of meltdown or, or kind mm-hmm. of um, uh, tantrums, etc., etc., etc. So what have, you, what have you learned as a parent uh, relating to the use of non-verbal cues that's, again, impacted on your daily routines, and, how, and what are the things that you're now doing that maybe you weren't doing 23 years ago when you kind of first started teaching? So this is a really interesting topic. Marcus has quite a significant speech and language delay. And when he was two, I was offered a place on a course to learn Makaton uh, to help with his communication 
um, to help them engage and reduce frustration. So Makaton, for those that don't know, is just a simplified version of BSL. You just, um, British Sign Language, you just sign in key words yeah. mm -hmm. rather than full sentences. So it was tricky because he didn't eat. He wasn't motivated by food. So a lot of early interactions with young children are, motiv mm. are kind of instigated around, yeah. around food. Yeah. Um, he wasn't toilet trained at that point. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those sort of obvious... Um, points were, you know, weren't really relevant to us. Um, but he, he always loved being read to, he still does, and he loves books on subjects that he can relate to. Um, and his first sign was actually book. Okay, uh-huh. Uh, and he would sign when he wanted to, mm -hmm. to, to sit with me or his dad and, um, and have a book read to him. And then he started to sign for his favourite people. Mm hmm you do a sign for his, for his sister, Jodie, uh -huh, uh -huh. uh, and you'd sign for mum, uh -huh. you'd sign for dad, and he'd uh -huh. um, sign for cat and mm -hmm. dog, and eventually we'd sign for biscuit and mm -hmm. cake. Mm -hmm. um, and we could talk about the characters in his favourite books now, and, and, mm -hmm. and I, I, I was able to see that they're actually, mm -hmm. cognitively, yeah, yeah, there yeah. was things going on Absolutely. inside his head just because he couldn't speak. Yeah. Orally, mm -hmm. he could, you know he was learning to communicate. I mean, our life was like a game of charades for many years as he started <laughs> to make up signs. And we're like, what on earth is he trying to say now? Um, you know, and it was frustrating for both of us because yeah. he's trying to communicate to me, but he's only got the limited words that yeah, I yeah. taught him. He can only go as fast as I can mm -hmm. as I can teach him. So we did often really become frustrated with each other, and it did become apparent that he understood far more than he could communicate verbally. Yeah. So although we don't use that as our main means of communication, signs and gestures are a really important tool at home and in the classroom. And it was only when I listened to your recent podcast with Joe that I started to really think about... about, about what you actually yeah, yeah, do I didn't, I didn't really it. know that I did it. I sort of became conscious in the classroom that actually making eye contact and just putting your fingers to your lips in the yeah. classroom... If everyone's, I, I start every lesson with silent reading. Mm -hmm. Well, I teach in different classrooms, so it's just a way of just establishing yeah. calm at the start. If somebody's slow to settle, rather than, you know, disturbing and the quiet, it out. Yeah. you know, it might take a moment to catch their eye, or yeah. a little cough, yeah. and they'll look up. Yeah. Just, I do that lots. Yeah. Even when we're writing, I might just catch their eye, yeah. and then just do a little kind of pretend I'm writing. Yeah. So again, and they usually you... get it. They don't often need a verbal reprimand after that, because yeah. they just know that I've caught them, and then they look around, and they're aware that everyone else is doing it. Yeah. And, and I suppose it's, as a teacher, it's finding your own, you know, so like the, the ones you've described there, and I know people can't see us, but you, know, you had your, your, your finger over your lips for that kind of quiet. It was yeah. pretending you had a pen in your hand kind of writing or the kind of opening of your hands, you know, as a, as a, as a book. Yeah. It, it's those type of things, isn't it, that actually are very, very easy to do. And there's yeah. probably lots of things or, you know, if students have got their hands up, actually just putting your putting your hand up and then lowering your hand down as if to say... Yeah. Just to indicate that you Hand want. down, please. And lots of us probably do it anyway. Absolutely. But, but, but what's interesting is that, again, this, this idea of deliberate practice and actually thinking about you were doing it but weren't aware you were doing it until yeah. Joe talked about it on the last kind of podcast yeah. and suddenly you were like, actually... Yeah, I'm doing this, and, and, and it's kind of working. And I can refine it now, though, now that I know that I'm doing it. I yeah. can kind of, I'm, I'm much more aware of how I'm using those. Another thing I'm aware that I do a lot is exaggerated facial expressions. So yeah. at the same time, while I've got the thing on lips, I might be, like, putting a really exaggerated <laughs> scowl, but Marcus didn't have language yeah. in, in when he was very young. So mm -hmm. we would often use signs and facial expression to convey feeling, yeah. simple feelings. You know, I'd do the sign for, for sad, 
um, when he was when he was misbehaving mm-hmm. to show that his behaviour was having an, an effect on me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would do the same back. Yeah. Eventually, if he was in the situation I was trying to make him eat, he would sign that that was making him yeah, sad. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes I would say, yes, I know. And sometimes I'd take that as a cue <laughs> to back off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and it'd be interesting for, for anyone listening to think, well, for you to do some deliberate practice and think, well, in the next couple of lessons that I'm teaching, can I set myself a task of how, 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 how many times can I actually run the room and kind of get students to do what they're doing without actually without saying speaking. anything? Because we often think of our voices as our greatest tool yeah, in teaching. And it's not all about us, is it? is more sophisticated than that absolutely though, isn't it? so that yeah, that would be my challenge to anyone listening how, how can you start to to use more of those non-verbal cues to mm-hmm. uh, establish routines to kind of maintain you know behavior silence whatever it is etc mm-hmm. et general you know kind of your house rules in the classroom without actually saying anything and and then thinking how much that has then the what the impact hasn't just been a, oh I've, I've done a challenge but actually the impact has been I've had to say less, therefore it's disrupted the class less. Mm. It's kept far more calm and order, and there's a general sense of kind of um, well, just order and kind of calmness in, in, mm. in the room because there's a you know you don't need to raise your voice, you don't need to kind of disrupt yeah. the flow of things. You can just you know catch someone's eye, and I you know I do that. I, I interesting when we I've been planning for this, I do it a lot when I walk on the sites of the three schools and my favourite one because of the kind of stuff I kind of do is the kind of tucking in of the shirt so I'll just have this kind of my two hands I'll kind of put my hands downwards towards the kind of trousers and and just kind of like nod towards them as if to say like shirt in I do that one too yeah Yeah. and and it's so I don't need to oi you shirt in and sometimes it's not it's if you if there's a busy corridor, you don't want to be no, bellowing. Exactly. Tuck yeah. your shirt in. Or, do you or, or I do the jacket off, so I put my hands towards my shoulders mm. as if I'm taking my my blazer yeah. off, and I just open my shoulders up and I just nod to people as if to say jacket off. And you that, know. that student that doesn't want all that negative attention on them actually, yeah. but they'll normally, usually, they'll respond Definitely. quite quickly. So there are a lots and lots of things that we do. That, that we can, I think, really kind of increase that repertoire, so we, we, we kind of we can add that. So yeah, that that, that that's really interesting. Um, moving on then, in terms of like uh, kind of com- complex tasks, and I know we've been talking about kind of kind of cognitive capacity and that kind of stuff. So when teachers are trying to establish high expectations or model complex tasks, we sometimes fall foul of giving far too many instructions in one go, or forgetting what it's like to be a novice learner, thus providing far too much input or overloading children's cognitive capacity. So how's your experience at home on the ongoing cognitive development of Marcus helped shape how you chunk bigger tasks into smaller component parts? So, I mean, this, this has really impacted my teaching, I think. So two really significant things that we had to teach Marcus to do was walking and eating. Mm-hmm. Both things that if you're a parent or you've been around young children a lot... They seem like they just happen by magic, don't mm-hmm. they? They mm-hmm. happen very, very quickly, very, yeah. very instinctively. Um, they kind of rapidly progress from one step to the next, mm-hmm. you know, from the core strength is built up by holding the head up, yeah. sitting on all fours or bum shuffling, weight bearing through the legs. It just seems to happen by witchcraft or magic. <laughs> But when you have a child that doesn't develop, you've then got to develop an understanding through your physio and work with your physio. Right, how, how do we break this down? Mm-hmm. How do we understand the magic of, of child development? So for walking, so Marcus was still what the doctors just described as floppy at 12 months old. Mm-hmm. 
So we had to put him in a standing frame. Mm-hmm. We had to put him in some sturdy little boots to strengthen mm-hmm. to support his ankles. We had to put him, him in gaiters that had like metal strips inside mm-hmm. them to hold his legs rigid. We had to force him into a standing frame with big Velcro straps around the back mm-hmm. and force him to wait there. Mm-hmm. Right, and he cried. To start off with, we could. He cried while we put him in the in the um, the, the gaiters and the shoes. He'd, he'd scream for a minute. And then we take it out. The mm-hmm. whole process took longer to get him ready for it than mm-hmm. you could tolerate. Yeah, sure, yeah. But we had to. We were told to build up to an hour. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of that is to um, develop the hip joints. Mm-hmm. Babies need to um, have the ball and socket joint. Mm-hmm. Um, the the socket sort of moulds around the top of the, the bone, mm-hmm. and then and that's developed by weight bearing. Yeah. So we had to encourage him to weight bear. That took a few years of doing that physio. We did build up to an hour eventually. Eventually, he would he would use it at nursery and stand yeah. in it for a couple of hours and play with his mm-hmm. upright, with his with his peers. So it also encouraged yeah, social yeah. interaction because yeah. he was at the same level as everyone. So if we apply that to writing, we expect children to write model exam responses. If they haven't, how can we expect them to do that if they haven't mastered sentence structure? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They don't have to structure a response. Yeah. We often, you know, just give them a task. Mm-hmm. There you go. Things need to be broken down. The eating, I mean, I've talked a lot about his eating, but it needed, he had to t- be able to tolerate food in front of him, to touch it and smell it, before you could even get him swallowing it. Yeah. Speech. If his oral muscles weren't developed through eating, mm-hmm. they've all had to, we've had to do exercises yeah. with him to, to develop all of that. And it's interesting because when it, the, the research around around not not necessarily uh, around the things you've talked about from from Marcus's point of view, but the general research around kind of general learning is that we have this thing called the curse of knowledge. That the more we know about something, or the more we're an expert at something, the harder it is to teach someone who's a novice learner mm-hmm. because we actually forget. We do it innately, don't yeah, we? Yeah, we forget what it's like to be a novice learner, so we kind of get frustrated about well how don't you kind of know this or, or so mm. it's sometimes actually in our classrooms it can be sometimes easier for other peers to teach somebody because they have just gone through the same barriers frustrations etc uh, etc et and they're completely they have far more empathy and understanding yeah. of what that novice learner is going through right now yeah. than we do because we learned that skill like 20, 30, 40 years ago. So you've got to go back and look at this, break it down. Definitely. the first steps? What do you need to do before you can write a, an excellent narrative? Yeah. And, and, and look at it through the eyes of a novice learner as well. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I'm doing this at the moment. I mentioned this in, in, in the start of the year now in our kind of on our PD days, but I'm trying to, or I'm, I'm doing a little bit of teaching my son to drive at the moment. <laughs> and although he's having lessons, you know, it's one of those things where I'll take him out every now and again and, and, and give him a bit more practice. But the things that I am doing completely automated in the car. So I drove to work this morning and I was thinking about, I had music on, I was thinking about what we were going to talk about, I was thinking about the questions, I was thinking about a meeting I had yesterday. I paid no conscious attention to the gears, to the, yeah. the biting point, none of that kind of stuff. But when I see my son in the car, he's literally like fully focused on those things. And it's remembering when we're doing, when we, we've got those complex tasks that we have to break them down into and, and yeah. find out well, what are the component parts? Because it's all right saying we need to break it down, but we need to then work out, well, what are those points we're yeah. going to break it down into? What's the first step? What, you know, and, and you know, like, like you mentioned there about kind of learning to what, you know, you, you, can't, you can't 
you know, walk before you, you crawl, then you walk, then you run. You can't hold it's, your head up and you haven't got any core strength. You can't expect your legs suddenly to be yeah. able to hold you up. There yeah. are all the, all those little bits that come Definitely. So before it's, it's, you can walk. So it's, it, it's thinking in our classrooms all the time. How can I break this down into the smallest mm. parts? What are the smallest parts? What am I, And also then, what are the starting abilities of my student? Yeah. So where do they need to start on that continuum of component parts? You can't because just it, jump, can you? Yeah, and equally, it's not just always about going right back to the start because they might be you know, two-thirds of the way along that line. Mm. So, yeah, that, that's really, really important. Um, last couple of things I, I want to ask before we kind of finish is that... Um, Success doesn't doesn't come uh, you know as quickly as we'd like in teaching, um, and we've just kind of mentioned that there about kind of things taking two or three years and you know it's taking quite long. So um, it can leave teachers and students feeling frustrated sometimes and wanting to give up or go back to the drawing board. So how has your experience over the past sixteen years with Marcus led you to believe in in celebrating and, and this is your 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 kind of words this inch stones rather than milestones, uh, and how have you translated this into your classroom practice? Well, we had to train ourselves to look for inch stones because every time we'd go to see another doctor or another therapist, we'd, they'd be like, mm, he hasn't really progressed to the next stage. And, you know, and that, that's extremely disheartening. Mm-hmm. So we talk about deliberate practice. I didn't call it then, but it was like, it was a definite choice. Yeah. I'm, I'm, not going, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to dwell yeah. on what he can't do. So we really trained ourselves, you know, right, he might not be walking, but look, he can hold his head up now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can hold himself at the dinner table with the family. Yeah, he's not eating, but mm-hmm. he's sitting there with us. He's not, you know, screaming because he wants to get away from the smells. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's not great at writing. Mm-hmm. He still finds it his fine motor skills. He's good, it, but he can type mm-hmm. and he can he can send emails and mm-hmm. he can send messages. He's brilliant with tech. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you've got to still keep working on the things that aren't coming easy. Mm-hmm. But not to dwell on them. Yeah. Um, I also think, in terms of success, what I've learned is thinking out the box and taking risks. Mm-hmm. So, the thing that got him eating, we tried years of, of liquids and puree, and then I stumbled across an idea of putting powdered flavours on his tongue. Mm-hmm. And we had a little paint palette, mm-hmm. and we put like garlic salt in and Nesquik powder. Mm-hmm. And he put his finger in, and it went to his mouth because it didn't look like food, yeah, yeah. it was in a paint palette. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And he didn't need to do anything with it. It just dissolved in mm-hmm. his mouth. He didn't need to swallow it. So that was an example of trying to look outside the box. That's not what the you know, baby manuals tell yeah, you to yeah, weed. Yeah. They don't tell you to give your child garlic yeah. salt. They probably advise against the opposite. So mm-hmm. it probably, you know, damage the liver or something. So thinking outside the box, um, taking risks. Marcus would not be eating or drinking now if I hadn't, one weekend, switched that pump off mm-hmm. and said... I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah, it's time now. He'd, yeah. he'd, he'd vomited all weekend. I could see that he was dehydrating. He looked terrible. And we'd been away for the first time um, in, in his little life. And he just would not stop being sick. So I said, that pump is going off. Mm-hmm. And I just kept offering drips of water off a mm-hmm. teaspoon into his mouth. Mm-hmm. And amazingly, after a couple of hours, he swallowed it. Yeah. And I just thought, right, the time, the time is right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seize the moment. He did lose a bit of weight. Mm-hmm. The doctors were on my case. <laughs> he was having weekly weights. I was like, but he's taking liquid for the first time. We're just, with your support, please, we, yeah, need, yeah. To, we need to try this. Yeah. So in the classroom, take risks. Yeah, yeah. Think outside the box. Yeah. I, th- I think those are really important lessons that, that, that I have learned to try and, try and embrace. If somebody presents me with a new idea that I've not tried before, 
I think after 20 odd years, it can still be tempting to think, oh, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. That's it. There's always something new to Absolutely. learn, isn't there? Absolutely, definitely. Right, two questions to finish off with, and we're going to have to be fairly quick because I think there's a class coming in here in a minute. I think we're, because we are, what's nice about it is that we're, it's a face to face podcast, this, and I'm sat opposite a table with you, whereas I've been doing them kind of virtually before. So, yeah. two quick questions to finish with in terms of kind of rapid fire. Um, firstly, with your send parent hat on now, what one piece of advice or plea would you give to other teachers listening who may have a number of students with a range of send needs in their classrooms? Okay, this one's really easy read their IPN. Yeah. Uh, get to know the students and build a relationship with them. They're all tied together. Um, Marcus has been lucky. He's had some amazing teachers and teaching assistants, yeah. both at primary and here at Richmond School. Um, but I'm involved with lots of parent forums, and what I see an awful lot, not here but in other yeah. places... There's a lack of understanding of the Yeah, and so sometimes just not knowing the student. Yeah, yeah. And as a teacher, you know, I've got a foot in both camps, and I do get a bit defensive over teachers, but... We, d- we must not neglect to read those IPMs yeah. and just make sure that they are on our um, seating plans yeah. and that we know what that child needs. If they need to be at the front, if it says that on the IPM, make sure they're at, they're at Absolutely. the front. Absolutely. And, there, and there's no excuse for that, is there? You know, it's there, it's all laid out, it's been given a to you. A lot of work goes into those documents exactly. and it's, yeah. it's our duty it's just, to implement them. And then lastly, question I'm starting to ask a lot of people now towards the end of this podcast is that if there's one thing that you wish you'd known about the craft of teaching when you first started as a teacher 23 years ago... What would it be? Uh, this is easy. I think I was far too shouty looking mm-hmm. back in my early years. You know, I'm five foot three, so you, can, you can't see, but I'm short. As a young teacher, I think I always looked younger than I was. Sadly, that's not the case now. But um, I felt that I had to compensate, compensate for being short and small by being fierce or strict, mm-hmm. particularly when I was presented with challenging behaviour. And I think my first job was at a boys' school in North London. Um, and I tried to make up for my short stature by being loud yeah. Yeah. and cross and, uh-huh. you know, strict. And I think these days I rarely raise my voice. Yeah. Uh, just prefer just to wait for quiet and have calm conversations. Don't do very many shouty yeah. telling Use the non-verbal all. cues, all those things we've talked about. All those things we've talked about. Yeah. Um, that's one thing I wish I'd known then. Thank you very much. Well, listen, that comes to the, the end of our discussion. I just want to say it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you this morning about that, about your, I mean, all of your parenting skills and the challenges you've gone through, but even more so how you've then been able to translate that into your classroom practice and you, you, you're kind of making a difference with what you're bringing from your experiences outside of school into the school. And it's, it, it's been fantastic. So, yeah, just a, a huge thank you for everything this morning. Uh, and it, like I say, it's been a pleasure, as always, talking about teaching learning, but, but in this case, kind of parenting as well so thank you very much indeed you're welcome thank you very much thanks for listening to the alt learn podcast we'll be back soon with another episode where we'll be speaking to more of our teachers and finding out how they're turning theory into practice until then take care